Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first spanking new episode of Mormon Matters, a weekly podcast dedicated to exploring the world of Mormonism, including current events, popular culture, politics, humor, and maybe even a tad bit of spirituality here and there, but I won't promise anything. My name is John DeLynn. I'm the host for today's episode, and I'd like now to introduce our panel for today. Our first uh, panelist is Ann Porter. Hello, Ann. Hi, John. We have John Hamer here. Hi. Jay Nelson Seawright. Hello. Julianne Hatton is our final panelist for today. Good evening. So fantastic. Uh, as our first episode, I think it mo- makes most sense uh, for us to introduce ourselves to each other, since many of us are meeting for the first time, but also to our uh, audience. So to begin with, Anne, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, as John said, my name is Ann Porter. I'm a software developer. I live in Slidell, Louisiana. I'm married. I have three children and two grandchildren. I'm a convert of just over 20 years, and I'm currently serving as my ward chorister. I'm very involved in the Mormon Internet. I'm a former webmaster of the website newordermormon.org, and a former moderator of the ancient Usenet group Sock Religion Mormon, as well as the Norder Mormons Discussion Board. I write for the Mormon blog, The Cultural Hall, and will be starting a two-month stint blogging weekly for the Mormon blog, Various Stages of Mormonism. For those of you who know about Fowler's Stages of Faith, I am in Stage 5, which means I'm confused at a higher level and about more important things than the rest of the panel. (laughs) And I am also a friend of John's. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, that's a good thing. Oh, I'll pay you later. (laughs) Hey, Ann, tell us us real quick what New Order Mormonism is, just for those who've never heard of it before. Uh, New Order Mormons are... People who choose to remain participating in the LDS faith, even though they have, they no longer believe some or many or any of the core doctrines of the church. Their reasons for staying can include anything from social reasons, a deep cultural connection to the faith, and uh, the primary one is for family. Uh, I am not quite as new order as I used to be. 
So you're swinging back. You're swinging back a bit on the pendulum, then, huh? I'm swinging back a bit on the pendulum. It's been an interesting five years. Well, I'm sure your bishop will be happy to hear that. Uh, he was. It, it's really fun to watch a bishop sit there with his mouth hanging open. <laughs> you want to what? <clears throat> well, uh, well, welcome, Ann Porter. Thank um, you, John. Let's go ahead and throw it to Julianne Hatton. Julianne, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm married. I have four children. A master's degree from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs from Syracuse University that I got one class at a time. I've co-hosted morning shows on the radio and television. I've been a news director at an NPR affiliate and an air traffic reporter. Wow, so you've got a little bit of media experience for us, huh? A little bit of media experience. How many years again? I've been in the radio business for about 15 years. Holy moly. So you're going to teach us a thing or two along the way. Oh, I don't know. You're doing pretty well yourself. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome. Welcome, Julianne. And and if Anne d- maybe discuss a little bit about herself on the spirituality, maybe orthodoxy scale, tell us a bit about uh, how you might describe yourself. I'm a five-generation Mormon, and I would consider myself pretty traditional, open-minded, have lived all over the country, um, but um, I'm a, a faithful, practicing Mormon. Okay, great. Excellent. Uh, Jay Nelson Seawright, you go next. Right. I'm a political scientist working at a university in the Chicago area. I'm also involved in the Mormon Internet, although not to nearly the extent that Ann Porter is. I am a blogger at the website www.bycommonconsent.com, a a Mormon blog covering general themes from a basically faithful, if sometimes liberal, perspective. Okay, I also have a hobby interest in 19th century Mormon history, as well as 20th and 21st century history and social science regarding Mormonism in Latin America. Excellent. Very good. And um, by common consent, that's sort of one of the juggernauts on the LDS blogger isn't it? Thou hast said. <laughs> there's a tooting your own horns thing yes we're, we're, we're a site that I would recommend all listeners immediately visit immediately alright check out your check out your <laughs> web stats later see if uh, we, we uh, prompted a spike right alright John Hamer uh, why don't you round it out for the non-John pan- non-John Dolan panelists <laughs> sure yeah hi um, I'm an independent researcher, a map maker, and a historian uh, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I am executive director of the John Whitmer Historical Association, along with my partner of 10 years, Mike Karpowitz. John Whitmer was one of the Book of Mormon witnesses and he was the first historian of the Mormon Church. Uh, the association was founded 34 years ago as the RLDS equivalent of the Mormon History Association. The RLDS Church, now called Community of Christ, is the second largest Latter-day Saint denomination. And although I'm not a member of the Community of Christ or of any of the other uh, Latter-day Saint churches, I consider myself to be a cultural Mormon. My ancestors became part of the Latter-day Saint movement seven generations ago in 1833, and uh, I was raised uh, in the LDS Church, and I have a bunch of uh, family members who are LDS. Excellent. It's kind of interesting that you're not necessarily a member of any of the uh, any of the Mormon churches, but you still have a strong interest in Mormon history. I oh, I definitely do. I mean, I uh, consider this is to be my heritage, my my own family history. And when I go back and I look at it, I'm uh, 
you know, find just, I think, the same amount of interest in it as people who are also uh, in the movement religiously. Yeah, well, I, I just have to say I've seen the, the book you're currently working on. It's called An Atlas of Mormonism. What's it called? The Atlas of Mormon History. Yeah, and uh, his maps are just outstanding. And so uh, watch out for John Hamer. He's, he's doing and will do even greater things. So it's a pleasure to have you all on. Uh, maybe I'll just introduce myself real quick. My name is John DeLynn. Uh, maybe I'm known a bit for a podcast that I have called Mormon Stories and a blog at mormonstories.org where I try and interview interesting people about uh, Mormon issues uh, raised in Texas. I uh, went to BYU, served a mission in Guatemala, uh, mostly in the technology industry. Uh, I've worked at Microsoft and Arthur Anderson, all sorts of places. Currently, I'm working at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, doing a really cool project called OpenCourseWare, which is sharing university course materials on the Internet to help equalize access to knowledge for all. So it's one of those warm, fuzzy, feel-good kind of things. Uh, but uh, I'm just pleased as much to have you all here with us today. So thanks again, all of you, for coming on. Let's just talk briefly about uh, what Mormon Matters is all about and why we're doing it. Um, I guess it's, it's important to sort of set the tone for what we're trying to do. And maybe some of you have the wiki that we've been working on as a group to try and, and settle on what this thing's all about. But I guess it's important to start from the premise uh, that we all are participating because we view Mormonism as a good thing. So this is not in any way to be a criticism or, or a bashing or a thrashing uh, of Mormonism. People who are active members of the LDS Church or of other Mormon-related faiths should feel comfortable knowing that this isn't a place where faith's going to be attacked or um, you know, lots of negativity is going to be going on uh, because we're going to start from that premise that Mormonism is good. I'm going to I'm going to put mm -hmm. you guys on the spot and I'm going to I'm going to list out uh, the bullet point and I'm going to have some of you talk about it, giving your angle. So the next angle or sort of principle that we're hoping to find ourselves on is that church leaders are good, uh, and and this is sort of um, rudimentary language. But anybody want to take that on and explain where we're going to be coming from from that angle? It yeah, was really well, with the originally, yeah, and originally the the statement in the wiki as we were talking about editing it, it's uh, church leaders are good, and I thought, um, you know, rather than just having a a value statement that ex that just says this and that is good, we might uh, describe in what way we think is good or why we why we value certain things, and so I think that for that phrase, I um, I think I wrote something like personalities in Mormon culture have legitimate individual perspectives that are often informed by deep personal beliefs that deserve to be treated with civility and respect. And so I was trying to say that maybe that needs to apply to um, all kinds of personalities in, in the Mormon, uh, Mormon culture, uh, whether or not they're the leader of any of the churches. Yeah, so a basic respect for, for all people, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, just understanding that um, this is not uh, political parties that are fighting against each other. It's people it's talking about um, a faith tradition where people have very strong beliefs in that. Right. And, and, so but church, I, oh, go ahead. Church members are good and that, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but but I do I do want to make sure people 
people feel at ease that that you know we're gonna make sure that there's um, no evil speaking of the Lord's anointed. I guess is kind of what I was trying to get at. Um, w- w- there may be some heavy discussion throughout these episodes about important issues, uh, maybe even related to to some leadership. But whether it's leaders or just general members or panelists, hopefully. Uh, always a level of respect and understanding. So, and possibly on some future episode, we can even define the term "evil speaking." Ooh, that would be a topic in and of itself. So, uh, one of the next principles we had uh, was was about balance, and there's been a healthy discussion today in our our, our private forum about balance, and uh, to what extent we want to maintain a balance, and through which categories. I think Jay should take that on. Well, from my point of view, one of the big reasons to do this show is to demonstrate that it is in fact possible for people within the Mormon community with very different points of view to be able to speak together on issues related to Mormonism and remain friendly, maintain civility. And in order to do that, there are two things that are critical. One is that we have to have a proper attitude towards each other, which I hope won't be a problem. But the other is we actually have to have different points of view. So we've carefully put together a group of people that, in our opinion, reflect really quite a lot of different ways of thinking about and living Mormonism. And in each of our episodes, we're trying to bring together very different subsets from within that group so that we'll have people who can offer quite different points of view on the different topics we discuss. Beautifully said, Jay. Did you write that down? (laughs) Uh, No. That that was good. See, that was so much better than my intro. Yeah. (laughs) Nice work, Jay. We definitely have talked a little bit about who our audience is and um, a little bit about inside baseball. Uh, Anne, do you want to try and and tackle that one a bit? Well, the audience for this show is people who are interested in the subject of Mormonism in all its flavors and its variety. And regardless of their plugged-inedness, that's where the inside baseball reference comes in. A number of us are active participants in the Mormon Internet, and we don't want that to be the only audience for our show. There are uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of wonderful Latter-day Saints who have never heard one of your podcasts, I'm sure, John, and we want those people to not feel like we're overlooking them we want to keep the scope of this broad. We want anybody who's interested in the topic to feel like they can benefit from our discussion. Very good. Beautiful. I, I'd have to say that was just as good as Jay's. Probably not. No, Absolutely. very good. I, I stuttered, but that's okay. No, it was beautiful. I didn't say um. I didn't, I didn't hear one um, and I was counting. I had my ticker out. I didn't hear one um. So nice job. I'm keeping I'm keeping score for all you guys, by the way. So keep oh, dear. Okay. Great. Right, I can't wait. So we, I'll just keep my mouth shut the whole time. <laughs> not. Um, just, to, just to close out, and Julianne, I'll throw this one to you. Um, we had as our last item here fun. And you actually voiced a concern that that was not in the proper place. So why don't you correct that for us? I think fun should be at the top of the list because... I think that anything we do is ultimately entertainment and that people want to feel something when they listen. And if we're having a good time and we're not feeling restrained and like we have to be 
politically correct, as it were, and say the right things and, and be too careful, I think the program could get stale. But every single person on this program has something to say, something important and valuable that I think will tap in to the audience. So I just, I just want to have fun, and I, I really enjoy that and think that that's an important part. That'll be our challenge and our goal, and I'm looking forward to it. So without any further ado, thank you all for uh, pitching in and helping out to describe a bit about what we uh, our aspirations for this show. Let's waste no more time and jump into the meat of uh, today's conversation. So many of you will know, or many of you may have seen, that PBS here in the United States uh, did a four-hour series by a woman named Helen Whitney, called the Mormons. It was a two-night series, two hours each night. And I would say it was pretty huge. And the reason I can say that, it actually came out while I was in Spain a couple weeks back uh, in very early May, late, late April, early May 2007. And I, I would say I was getting 2,000 visits a day, which uh, is about maybe double the average that Mormon stories gets. Jay, do you know if, if By Comic Consent had a similar phenomenon happen there? I know that we certainly had heavy coverage of the um, of the documentary and a lot of participation in the comment threads. I don't actually know what the um, access statistics were. Yeah, so uh, I I'll just personally say I found I found the series to be fascinating. It, it was a very wide assortment of people that were being interviewed, uh, anywhere from Gord I think Gordon B. Hinckley, the president of the LDS Church, was on it. Uh, for at least a, a brief amount. There were other general authorities. Tal Bachman. Oh, yeah, well. A whole range of people. Tal Bachman. There was, uh, <laughs> well, from the general authorities, there was Oaks, and there was Holland. And uh, who, who's the PR guy for the church? Oh. Um, well, um, well, Marlon Jensen was on Jensen it. Was oh, he's the, as, the, as the historian. The historian, sorry. Yeah. Church historian. But, but he almost acted as a PR guy, didn't you think so? <laughs> I think he well, was that's another smooth. Question. He was smooth uh, as silk. He was good. <laughs> he was very good. Uh, there was also uh, some of the regulars from, let's say, the more academic or liberal or even Sunstone type crowd. There was Grant Palmer. There was Gregory Prince. Uh, you guys help me out. Who else? Uh, who else was representing that contingency? Will Bagley. Will Bagley. Margaret Toscano. Yep, Margaret. And then there's a whole range of other uh, academic or historian people that may or may not have been affiliated with the church. I thought it would make sense to just maybe go around and have everyone give uh, maybe some first impressions of it and maybe even say something they thought was particularly interesting or disturbing. So let's start with John Hamer. John, did, did you get a chance to watch it? Oh, yeah. I thought that the, her, the end product was just a very good translation of... Uh, Latter Day Saints to and and the Mormon Church to um, Americans in general. Uh, a lot of people I, I have mostly here in Ann Arbor know um, uh, people who aren't Mormons or connected with Mormonism, and they a lot of them called and wanted to talk about it, and I think it it was a big hit. But I think that uh, Helen Whitney's work also uh, holds up a a, a um, helpful mirror for you know Mormons to look at themselves. Uh, in the end, I kind of felt it was a very um, sympathetic portrayal because if the portrait had failed to um, include controversies and dissenting voices, it would have uh, lacked credibility. Right. Hmm. 
So you feel it was a pretty good balance overall? Oh yeah, I thought it was. She did it. It's a very hard thing to try to do. I mean, I was. Um, you mentioned this um, project that I'm trying to do with uh, um, making in one single atlas. You know, the entire experience of Mormon history, 200 pages, and it's very hard to try to decide. You know, what you're not putting, what you are putting in, what you aren't putting in, and uh, you know, so trying to cut this down to four hours and get all the things that she she focused in on. But I think that. Um, I think she did a great job of it. So d- let's just ask, so that we don't all have to repeat our assessment. Does anyone, does everyone sort of echo John Hamer's uh, assessment that it was a pretty fair and balanced? Does anybody have a different view in terms of its balance at all, or, or are we all pretty much in agreement there? I think me, uh, Julianne, as a, as a traditional Mormon, um, I, if there was something that made my hair stand up a little bit on the end, you know, the back of my neck, there was always something that came in to offer balance. It was magnificent in that way. And I do know people that said, oh, I could only watch a half hour of it, and then I had to turn my television off. And I was waiting for that um, and never never did come across that. It, it was amazing in that way. So I thought it was extremely balanced, too. Wasn't there an article that said that viewership in Utah dropped off significantly on the second night? Did anybody read that? Meaning they watched the beginning or they just didn't watch the Meaning that people night. watched the first episode. And this, anecdotally, some people in my ward that I talked to said, yeah, I watched the first night, but it was so negative and ominous. The music was brooding and <laughs> ominous and it was gloomy. And uh, it's, it talks so much about polygamy and about Mountain Meadows and that has nothing to do with Mormons. And so I just didn't watch the second night. Did anybody hear any rumblings about that uh, elsewhere? Uh, anecdotally, I can say that certainly on the Mormon Internet, there were a lot of complaints. The number of people who felt that it was uh, a misrepresentation of Mormonism or in some way denigrating pretty substantially outnumbered the number of people who felt, I think as we all on the panel do, that it was a pretty decent documentary. Right. Interesting. Well, um, does anybody was there anything that pleasantly surprised any of you? that you wanted to mention, something that just delighted you, touched you, made you feel really moved uh, about uh, Mormonism or the LDS Church? Oh, I, I want to pipe up with the, the much maligned dance segment. That uh, tell, tell us about uh, that. Tell us about that for those who haven't seen it. Well, for no apparent reason at all, Terrell Gibbons talked about how important dance was and linked it. Terrell Givens is, I don't know what he's a professor of, I'm sorry. He was very prominently featured in the, in the, in the documentary. He was all over both segments. During the first segment, he was talking about the migration west and how even in the middle of all this deprivation, there would be fiddle and a banjo or, you know, a couple of fiddles and a juice harp or whatever and people would have dances and he linked that in to the LDS celebration of the human body how we don't consider our our bodies as some loathsome thing to be cast aside but as an integral part of our soul and that Dance was our way of celebrating that, and the visuals that went with it with this discussion were the the 
multiple championship winning BYU ballroom dance team members in, in competition and in rehearsal. And it, it was funny because it didn't, the visuals didn't really seem to fit with the story. They didn't, they weren't the same as the story he was telling. But they were so beautiful and lively. And I think part of television, you know, being such a visual medium is that they were really able to, it was just a very, for me, uplifting and lively part of the show. It was just a brief segment. Couldn't have lasted more than two minutes, but I just loved it. And it's funny because relating back to comments that we that I read on the Mormon internet that was one of those segments that you either loved it or you hated it so many comments that I've read about it were like what was that dance thing what were they talking what were they yeah. doing so it, it's an interesting contrast you know Baptists a lot of times uh, Southern Baptists can be our toughest critics and we all know that Southern Baptists at least when I was growing up weren't allowed to dance I wonder if there was a bit of a, a subtle reference or, or thought or reflection as a contrast between us and them. But but that's interesting, Anne. Any, anybody else have any moments of, of inspiration or joy uh, from this from this documentary? Well, actually, I, I'd like to say, you know, I, I loved to see that they gave an opportunity for some people who are kind of outsiders in our community, Margaret Toscano in particular, but a couple of others, to sit back and reflect and tell their stories in a way that allowed them to share what they really found powerful about Mormonism. I know that a lot of people were just touched by hearing Margaret Toscano, this excommunicated theologian, talk about the positive, powerful spiritual experiences she'd had at the temple. And to me, you know, I'd, I'd read some of those things before in interviews she's done. But it was wonderful to me to think that a lot of Mormons were coming together and being able to listen to this and realize that, you know, there are a lot of differences among, you know, between many of us and Margaret Toscano, but that we could still share this kind of a spiritual moment. You know, that, that reminds me of my interview with Richard Bushman, which I'm sure probably few of you have actually listened to, which I don't blame you. But, but there's a point in the interview with Richard Bushman which I, where I was just astounded. He basically said... I don't care if, if you're disfellowshipped, if you're disaffected, or if you've been excommunicated. You should all consider yourselves Mormons and, and brothers and sisters in the faith and not feel ashamed or estranged in any way to, to affiliate and to find your place. Because, you know, as far as Richard Bushman's concerned, we're all welcome in the umbrella of Mormonism, regardless of where we are on the faith spectrum. So it sounds like there's a bit of that going on. Yeah, I think so. And I think, it, I mean, in, in looking at the comments on the internet, I, I know that a lot of people who otherwise would have just assumed that, that a, a Toscano must be, um, you know, the voice of Satan were, were really touched by her comments. Yeah. Yeah. D Julianne, did, was there a part that you particularly loved or was inspired by? Oh, that was good because she really stood out in my mind, too. I mean, she said it all. She laid it all on the table. And, and it, it, you know, there were some cringeworthy moments there. But um, that was interesting because you don't hear very often what goes on in the excommunication uh, situation in the church. So I'd never heard it described that when I'm a lifetime member of the church. So that was just to have that um, laid open. 
was interesting. I think we're going to kind of get probably to what stood out in my mind, maybe um, wind our way there. But let me just something to think about. There seemed to be the theme throughout, and I don't know if all of you noticed this, but the theme throughout the program of moving outside of the original foundings of the church and how we're going to do that. And I thought that that was just kind of interesting. That just sort of seemed to be the theme. How will we reconcile the past and move on with the future? And is that possible? Yeah, the the contrast between maintaining our identity and being who we've always been and and changing to adapt to um, what the future requires us to be. I also felt that she went out of her way to get a variety of uh, the spectrum of uh, Mormonism, and I enjoyed that too. And I was touched by just the different life stories of of the people from so many walks of life that we don't see oftentimes in our traditional Salt Lake wards and units and so forth. Yeah, She really did go out of her way to um, do background on this. I mean, she's been working on this for a long, long time, talked to so many people, thousands of people. So, I mean, I think that that that's one of the reasons why this this um, varied picture emerges. It's not just a sweep in, you know, do some do a little bit of videotaping and and edit something together based on, you know, the 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 standard story. Something wonderful about the project is that all of the interviews, or at least a large part of the interviews that were done that didn't make it onto the show are available on the, the show's website, so that if you're really interested, there's you know a whole sort of wonderful archive of extra material to go get. As, transcri- as transcripts or as video? As transcript, yeah. that's right. Mm. And I actually spoke with some of the PBS people about whether any of the video footage would actually be shared, and it turns out it's, it's a real difficult situation in terms of rights and, and intellectual property and usage, but my hope is someday that stuff gets donated because I'm sure that the archives are even three times as fascinating as, as the program oh, itself. Yeah. I'll just I'll just throw in a couple things that really inspired me. One was the discussion around uh, the LDS response to the Katrina, um, to, to Hurricane Katrina, and when the man was talking about how when the missionaries used to come to his house, he used to just blow them off and send them away. But after he saw all the Mormons pitching in and helping out with Katrina, he, he said there wasn't going to be a, a, a Mormon missionary you know, companionship that knocked on his door where he wouldn't invite them in. And, uh, you know, hair was standing up on my arms when I listened to that. Uh, And then also, I I was quite, I was quite touched by the family that, um, that had the daughter who had a terminal illness and just how close and and tightly knit that family was. It's sort of a recurring theme from that South Park episode. You guys remember, any of you guys seen that South Park episode? (laughs) Of course. Where they just make that Mormon family just seem so cheesy and they're playing like a a 10-piece instrument (laughs) band for their family home evening and they're having popcorn and Kool-Aid. That's just like what my family was like. Yeah. (laughs) Really? Bless you. Julie, is that how our our family (laughs) is like, Julie? (laughs) That's another show, Joel. Yeah. Julie's my sister, by the way. Um, yeah, so, but but to be honest, I do think of just tight, tight-knit, warm, close families when I think of uh, the LDS Church. I just do. And so that rang true to me, and and uh, I found it quite beautiful. Well, let's, uh, we're, um, we're running short on this segment. I'm sorry, I oh, want to jump in and please. say something. Miss, may I? Please. Um, 
the Katrina thing uh, has some real strong um, personal impact for me. I live in Slidell, Louisiana, in the western eye of Hurricane Katrina pretty much went over my house. Um, the uh, It was wonderful that she included that in the documentary, uh, that the LDS response to Hurricane Katrina, in my opinion, is worthy of a documentary in and of itself. It was just phenomenal. Uh, people who... I've heard a, I've heard a story of a uh, congregate of a an evangelical minister uh, going into an LDS meeting house and saying, "I want to tell you, I'm sorry for everything I've ever said about you people. <laughs> Bridges have been built. Uh, the the between the LDS manpower and the facilities offered by the uh, a, a church that's just up the street from the regional storehouse. The regional storehouse is within walking distance of my house. And it was the command center for the recovery here, uh, for the LDS response. And it, it was just a very amazing, amazing act of Christian charity and love that, it, as you saw from the gentleman's comment, echoes through the echoes through the region almost two years later. It's been almost two years since Katrina. We're still, we're st I still have a trailer across the street from my house. So we still have a FEMA trailer there. Wow. And it's, the LDS response is something that still echoes throughout the community as something that we're like, oh yeah, the Mormons, they were the ones who came and cleared the trees from my yard. So... Yeah, and you know, I'll just throw this out there. We don't have to really discuss it, but it, it does it does make me think about you know. Men, some of you may know about my mission experience, where I think there was so much zeal for for converts and numbers that maybe the missionaries lost sight a bit, and a lot of baptisms happened that really weren't edifying for either the people who were baptized or for the church. And and a lot of people I've talked to about missions say, you know, why doesn't the church just send out missionaries to do humanitarian stuff, to do immunizations, to do education, literacy? disaster uh, response, you know, could we actually bring more people into the church just through pure Christ-like love and service uh, than, if, than if we do proselyting? I know it's not an either-or, and I actually know that the church has piloted service missions to try and see if that might work. But it, it does sort of make me think about whether there might come a time where a 19-year-old man or a 21-year-old woman might be able to say, you know, I'd rather do humanitarian than proselyting and be able to spend two years, you know, doing literacy or immunization or something like that. So you guys uh, have any thoughts on that or, or should we push on? I think that'll be really effective if they decide to do that. So you, you think, I, mean, I think, I, I think that that would really, I think that that actually, that right now the, um, the, the, the model isn't, I mean, part of the, the model right now, I think that people have to kind of even fall back and justify and say, well, the byproduct of converting the missionary uh, all by itself is important enough to justify it, even if um, you know the, uh, the 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 main product doesn't as always as effective as as people would like. But I think that the byproduct would be even better, and then you'd also have another product of just the goodwill if if there was going to be this focus on humanitarian missions. So John Hammer votes for. Any other thoughts? 
I think what was so powerful to me about the LDS response is that it 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 emerged spontaneously from uh, the people who wanted to help. Yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't contrived. Uh, people came from from hundreds of miles away. It, the you know, a a a group of 10 guys from a Spanish-speaking stake in, in Houston, Texas, came through with their chainsaws, cleared out everything that was down in my front yard, and it, it's piled it up on the sidewalk. They were in and out in 10 minutes and left going, uno mas, uno mas. That wasn't a missionary thing. There was organization behind it, but they were there. These were just... These were just men. They just they gave up their weekend. They gave up their week to help, and that was what was so powerful about it for me. Yeah. Well, well, beautiful. Th- thank you all for that. Let's um, let's let's turn the coin a little bit, uh, and maybe talk about was there anything in the in the documentary that that was disturbing to anyone, that was frustrating, uh, you know, or or the, the you know where maybe the church didn't come off as well as it might have or came off accurately, but maybe in not such a good light. Does anybody have any thoughts on what they didn't like or what disturbed them? In fact, let me, Julie, Julianne, you're, I would say that of, of all those who are here, you've probably done the least amount of time reading like controversial, controversial church history or delving into all that stuff. So as someone who's sort of more of a traditional Mormon who hasn't uh, wasted all that time, <laughs> I don't consider it a waste of time. Well, was amen, it, was, amen. Was there was there anything in there that you were like, "Whoa, I didn't know that," or "Dang, that's wow, that's a little bit." Is that true? Yeah. Where you're like, "Whoa." I hadn't done a lot of research. I went a little here. I hadn't done a lot of research on the Mountain Meadows massacre, and I loved the way it was handled. The only question that was not completely answered for me was. Uh, and we can get into this in another show, but uh, was not answered completely for me was. Uh, was this were these people from Arkansas to be made an example of in that no one will mess with the Mormons? And I think that's the question I came with. I, I, I wish they would have treated a little bit more what Brigham Young really did say and how the Mormons really did react when they first heard about it. Not the cover up. I guess I can I kind of understand the cover up from a human perspective. That wasn't as interesting to me or intriguing to me as was. Hmm. You know what was what was the real motive here? What on the Mormon side as to why these people were uh, treated the way they were? Yeah. And um, obviously, it was a horrible thing. And I really appreciated Oaks's response. And you know, nobody was apologizing there for the Mormons at all. So, so I, you know, having not really known a lot about the Mountain Meadows massacre, again, I thought that was very interesting. Of course, some of the details of the temple ritual were a little bit bothersome to me, on a personal level. I have a son that's preparing to go through the temple for the first time to go on a mission, and I turned it down during that party. He was sleeping in the other room. Uh, you know, a little winsworthy. Would I take it out? I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and uh, the the treatment of Joseph Smith, Julianne, did that was that favorable? Not favorable? What do you think about that? No problems at all with the treatment of Joseph Smith. Okay. Well, that's interesting, J- John Hamer. Uh, you. You're probably, I would say, 
maybe tied w with Jay, I don't know, one of the most uh, adept at, at, at LDS history, Mormon history. Uh, what were your thoughts in terms of the historical treatment? Accurate, not accurate? Where it got it right? Did it get it wrong anywhere? Well, no, I think it was very accurate. I mean, the question uh, the, it's just a matter of you couldn't include everything that you might want to have heard about. And, and certainly from, you know, just my own interests that I always have, I'm interested in the the broader movement and in this case you know the focus was entirely on the LDS church and then also on um, the Mormon fundamentalist churches and so you know there was like a I think there was like a half sentence throwaway line that um, you know that Joseph Smith's wife Emma didn't you know go to Utah and there's and you know her son founded the reorganized church or whatever but aside from that there wasn't a lot any mention of that I know that Helen um, Whitney interviewed uh, Grant McMurray who was the prophet and president of the community of Christ at the time when she interviewed him. And so, um, you know, I mean, but anyway, I understand why she can't fit everything in there. So, I mean, that was, uh, that was one thing that I wouldn't have mind seeing more of. Yeah. Uh, Jay or Ann, was there anything you guys that was disturbing to you or, or, uh, troubling or anything? Well, uh, I, I, oh, oh, go ahead. My, Do Ann then Jay ladies first. I'll just make this really quick. My husband, the, is a herpetologist and he was very Does that amused. mean he studies herpes? <laughs> I'm sorry. He, he studies reptiles. Oh, sorry, sorry. And okay. he, he was very uh, amused by Tal Backman's commentary yeah. about the crocodiles and the poison-spitting toads. The only thing they really have in Argentina is a, called the spectacled caiman. And it is a crocodilian, but it's really not dangerous unless you're a dog or a baby. And, and as far as he knows, there are no documented poison-spitting toads. There are toads that, you know, their skins are poisonous. And if you, you know, go around licking the toad, that could be really bad for you. But he, he was very amused by the... By the uh, account of the herpetofauna of of Argentina. Now now Anne, let me just get this straight. Are are you are you accusing Tal Bachman of uh, of being hyperbole. of being a little Hyper bit hyperbole? Uh, using hyperbole? <laughs> hyperbole. And maybe yes. exactly really? I, I don't know. You know who his dad is. I'm not. My husband is. He's he's the herpetologist. I'm just relating his response. But you know you know who's great hair though. <laughs> great hair. You know who he also has a pretty decent album. You know who his dad. You know who his dad is, right, Ann? You better tell yes. your husband who his yes. dad is before he the makes any other. The original three chord wonders. Because I say Tal is just taking care of business. Baby, sorry. Tal is just taking care of business, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, no. Um, how about that comment that he made about uh, missionaries strapping on a bomb and blowing wow. themselves up? <laughs> Well, did anybody did anybody feel like that? I mean, I'll be honest with you. On my mission, I saw missionaries do some amazingly disturbing things because they felt like they were doing what their mission presidents wanted. Did anybody feel like that wasn't absurd? Or does everyone think that that was pretty much uh, ridiculous? It's clearly uh, hyperbole. Right. Yeah. That piece, yes, that was. And, and I think that and that, that actually didn't bother me at all because I thought it was clearly hyperbole. It the the connection is of course really really negative but i i've seen mission, i i've never served a mission but i've seen missionaries that were really zealous 
How about those missionaries who were chasing the people around on the sidewalk? Chasing the what? <laughs> the, the missionaries, they, there's this guy walking around on the sidewalk, and they stand in front of the guy and say, hey, we have a message. And he's like... <laughs> that was in downtown Chicago. He's like, get out of my way. Get out of my way. That was in Chicago? Yeah, that was Chicago. I could recognize the buildings. Yeah. Is that right? I hurt for those guys. I hurt for those guys. Why? What, what a, been those guys. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, it was, it was just... I can just imagine the frustration. And actually, that gave me a sense of the level of commitment that a missionary has to have. To be willing to do that kind of thing, oh my gosh, I would have gone home after a day. Yeah. <laughs> well, there were, shall we say, other options and other strategies. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> not all missionaries are like that. Just just the ones who, who um, will tell you the truth about their missions when they get home. So aside from form tackling, there are other options available? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. So, Jay, you had a couple of things you wanted to say, maybe. Well, I, I just really, I really agree with what John Hamer had to say. That, from my point of view, there were some missed opportunities. I would have loved to have seen a little bit on on the Strangites and and the reorganization. And you know, out of four hours, I would have thought that there could be five minutes for that. But you know, that's a priorities thing. There were, you know, another example, I guess the emblematic one for me is the one that Anne mentioned earlier of the dancing. I loved that they had that in there, but there was a sort of missed opportunity flavor to it. Because while dancing has been a part of Mormonism almost from the very beginning, controversies over proper and improper dancing are almost <laughs> as old. And there's a whole history of this. It's been done by a great historian, Davis Bitten. He published this about 30 years ago. I think that putting our love of dance and our worries about how to dance without bringing Satan into the room together and talking about both of those together really could be revealing about how Mormons think about bodies. Because on the one hand, we do think bodies are good, but on the other hand, we don't always trust them. And putting those together, you know, you could have taken the same two minutes and the same footage and gotten a level deeper than than just saying we love our bodies. Right, right. Well, I'm... I'll be honest. I'm stunned that nobody has mentioned uh, the the Down H. Oaks comment, where with with a bit of a smirk, I've heard people describe it as he actually, I couldn't believe it, made the statement that it's something to the effect of it's improper to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is accurate or correct. That was, a, I, and I'm a huge Oaks fan because he, I personally, he's reached out to me when I had some problems, and I think he's brilliant. And um, he's shown me that he, he does care deeply. Uh, but that was a bit of a shocker. Was that a shocker for anyone else? Or Went right over my head. Oh, you missed that, Ann? Well, I, I think maybe I didn't, but it's just like, oh, yeah, right, whatever. So am I just am I just making a big deal out of something that really, did he say that? or did I? No, he it? said that. He said that, absolutely. So does it, Julie, Julianne, do you want to defend that? Uh, no. I do remember the Watchman. It was in a, a Watchman on the Tower kind of a vein, wasn't that's, it? That's right, yeah. And I think it was also somewhere played in there was Packer, Packer's uh, remark about, you know, it's one thing to have disagreements with the church, but we don't want to pull others down with us. Yeah. Was it along that same vein? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't have a problem with that. I, they can say whatever they want. I mean, yeah. Um, I want to just throw out too that Dallin Oaks got so many brownie points from me for his very thoughtful and 
is sincere response in the Mountain Meadows segment that, you know, it pretty much, I gave him a pass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he got a pass because what he said about Mountain Meadows was so profound to me. I, it's the closest thing I have ever heard to a public apology by a high-ranking LDS official for what happened at Mountain Meadows. It, there was no excuse-making. It was very, very powerful. And so at that point, I was so positively disposed toward Dallin Oaks that, you know, yeah, he, he could have said a million stupid things after and he would have gotten a buy as far as I was concerned. So that's probably why I didn't pay much attention to the no criticizing thing. I guess, I mean, from my point of view, if you've paid attention in church over the last 15 years, you've probably heard similar things a dozen times. I I, I just have a hard time seeing how we could be surprised by that. It's it's just just the message we hear. Yeah, there's a part of me, I actually really agree with the message from the standpoint of, I don't believe there's a job, I I, I believe there are a few harder jobs in the world uh, that maybe that are are good jobs uh, than than being an apostle or, or member of the first presidency of the LDS Church. My my intuition tells me it's an extremely hard job, and so anybody who thinks they can stand up and just throw loose, uninformed, uh, vicious criticisms at, at these men who are trying to do their best, I think uh, I think that's always inappropriate. But I, but I, and I, I, they might even agree with me on this. There's a part of me that also feels like um, that there is a place for saying, you know, you you don't want the maybe the George Bush phenomenon. If I could invoke uh, the political arena here, you don't want it so that you're so insulated that you can't get candid feedback from people. So maybe I'd say that there is a place for advice or suggestions or feedback. Uh, in a, in a good spirit that that you know could be labeled as criticism but as long as it's done with compassion and a, and a desire to improve things i think there is a place for that in the church a- anyone have any thoughts on that before we move on no problem well I, what i'm thinking too is there's a difference between uh disagreeing with what they say and criticizing the leaders saying you know Dallin Oaks is an idiot. Yeah. Or, boy, did you hear that stupid thing he said? Or, I can't believe, I mean, heaven knows, having spent a great deal of time on the um, disaffected Mormon internet, uh, <laughs> there's some really mean, <laughs> mean things people say. And, and there's, it's different to say, I disagree with Elder Nelson about the church's position on a constitutional amendment on same-sex marriage, that is not criticizing the brethren. As far as I'm concerned, that is a statement of disagreement with the policy. Yeah. And I'm allowed to do that. Yeah. And that's different than calling him names or... And saying Elder Nelson is an idiot. That's, yeah. that's not acceptable. And you realize we're releasing this to the world and people have yeah, MP3 I know. editors. I'm going to be in so much trouble. I'm going to be in so <laughs> much trouble. They'll just take those two sentences yep, out I'm of just context. Gonna, They'll I'm just take those. I'm yeah, going to take that okay. clip and play it over and over again. <laughs> Great, John. That'll be, that'll be the teaser for this show. <laughs> Mormon <laughs> Matters, where you'll hear Ann Porter say. All right. Well, I think, I, think we've covered, um, I think we've covered the PBS thing uh, adequately. Thank you all for your thoughts and comments there. Let's quickly turn uh, to... 
a few interesting articles that I believe uh, Jay, it was either Jay or Ann, I forget, but, but one of you guys recommended that we, we look at a few of the articles that were in the Ensign, in the June 2007 Ensign, that dealt with uh, faith and faith issues. And so maybe we can, uh, Jay, w was it you who read these and, and found them interesting? Believe it or not, it was Julie M. Smith, who was going to be with us, but, but was unavailable tonight. Oh, okay. She recommended them to us, and I think they're really quite interesting. Um, tell tell know, us they, about A Firm Foundation in a Shaky World. All right. So the story here, we've got an article from um, Adam C. Olson from the, the church magazine, so I guess a church employee, who's talking about um, how to deal with the problem of questions you don't know how to answer about religion and how to maintain faith in, in the gospel and the church in spite of um, things you don't know. He, he draws an analogy to an earthquake in 1755 in Lisbon, Portugal, and says that often we have these kinds of experiences in our lives that shake our faith like that earthquake, I suppose. The thing that I think is really fascinating about this... Um, right. The thing that I think is really fascinating about this article, or one of the things, is that Olson actually interviewed a bunch of new and, and recent converts to talk to them about how they've dealt with um, opportunities or moments when people had the opportunity to really sort of throw them for a loop with some new information or a challenging question. Yeah, there's like, and, a, there's like a guy who says, I was at work and people were hammering me about certain controversial issues with the church, right? Yeah, exactly. And a couple of different people who talk about how they've they've tried to deal with that when they were converts. So um, if I could, um, let's see, give the quote. There's there's a recent, a recent convert named Francisco Lopez who says, some of the people I worked with were skeptical of my beliefs and criticized me for what I believed in. They often questioned me using science that seemed to conflict with our faith. And so what you have in this article is, A, an article that really takes seriously the point of view of these converts who are dealing with a tough situation. And I think that's actually kind of unusual and interesting. But B, the thing that's more unusual is an article that takes very directly the idea that there are difficult questions that Mormons may run into and not know the answers to related to faith, and that offers ideas about how to deal with that. These are not things, I guess, that we see every month in the Enzyme. Yeah. I, I felt that I, I was really stunned. Uh, there's, there's a point in the um, article where it says, Brother Lopez recalls discussion about evolution, DNA, and more. Uh, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I, I assume that they're referring to the, the DNA in the Book of Mormon issue uh, with the Almost Lamanites. Yeah. And um, as you read the disaffected uh, bulletin boards or, or forums that Ann talks about, you know, you'll, you'll know that there are just you know, constant claims that the church hides and, and obscures uh, anything that's controversial and avoids it. Uh, but this is definitely some openness to, to just mention DNA and evolution and things that could potentially harm or, or introduce uh, people to issues or, or even be seen as acknowledging these as issues. Did anybody uh, have any thoughts or feelings about that? Well, and just bringing it down to a common man level, John, um, I remember being in a small branch in Kentucky and having a dear friend who joined the church because her husband had been uh, a less active member. And she said after a few months in the church, she kept saying her refrain was, that's not the church I joined. They didn't tell me about that when I joined the church. And she went through a period of shock. And I've heard that from some converts. 
um, along the way that <laughs> this is the church I joined. So there is, I think, for some people, a challenge of <clears throat> faith uh, when they do first join the church, and I think it's a very important thing to address, uh, especially when people are breaking away from their families and, and you know, uh, all the issues that that imposes and the, the changes in lifestyle and so forth, because we don't have the retention that we're hoping for, and until we do address that, you know, so that's, I think it's great that this is becoming more of a forefront discussed topic. I also like that they've taken the fiction out of, like, the children's friend and the new era. There were some people that were really upset by that, but I like that the church is moving towards more, I would say, a little more realism. A lot of the topics in the ensign I've noticed are are dealing with, um, you know, uh, some of the issues that the church has struggled with. Yeah. So, in so terms what? of being surprised about seeing things like DNA in an unexpected context, I had um, on this trip I took last last month. I uh, we stopped by my grandmother's house, who she's a um, you know very strong uh, believing Mormon. And the first thing that she said when uh, when we walked in the house, she says, "What do you know about DNA?" Mm-hmm. And I and I was just Ooh. I was just shocked. You know what what <laughs> she gonna like? Uh, 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 I, I don't know what I uh, answer it. And then, but it turns out that she wanted to talk about um, DNA genealogy. You know, she's a major genealogist. So I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but I, I one thing I, I thought um, that the it was interesting in that first article is this. I think in the end, it's an effective strategy. Um, for dealing with that is, I think there's advised there is uh, building, you know, your faith on the rock of Christ so that you have the strength to withstand these torrents, you know, uh, when they come. I think that that's as opposed to focusing on um, the sort of details that you have to, that maybe uh, you you get when there, there's on the one hand questioning um, antagonist question and then apologist answer. I think that that probably isn't uh, the the strategy here is that that's not as strong to do. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's that's the other thing that struck me about the article was was the strategy that it offered for finding answers to these questions. I mean, I'm a person who's gone through you know periods of having serious, difficult questions about Mormonism to deal with on my own. And the fact of the matter is, these were the answers people gave me at the time, and I, I, I didn't find it helpful to be told to um, pray, have faith, read the scriptures, and be patient. <laughs> um, I know that some people do find sort of comfort on, on questions like through those means, but you know, I was dealing with what I found to be, at least in large part, intellectual questions, and, and to be told that, that wanting an intellectual answer to an intellectual question was unrealistic, what um, wasn't helpful to me. Obviously, some of the people interviewed in this article do find these strategies helpful, So, the, but it's interesting to me that the one strategy and not the other is approved here. Yeah. yeah I, I, guess, I guess we could envision a day, if we wanted to get really creative, where the church would have a 10-page article on uh, DNA in the Book of Mormon and, and how it maybe isn't such the issue that we thought. Uh, any guys? Any guys think that that's in our future? <laughs> Probably not. I'd have been happy just to see a two or three paragraph thing talking about how you can sometimes find good answers by studying up, but <laughs> that might be too much to ask as well. Yeah. Um, in a in a good news bad news sort of perspective on this article, the 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 section that Jay points up 
as something that he thinks is really unusual to see. I actually didn't see it that way at all. I recall, I, I've seen off and on over the course of my last 10 to 12 years of reading the Ensign uh, with a four-year gap that just ended like a month ago, um, the, the contrast between science and religion portrayed over and over and over again. That, you mean that you have to choose one or the other? Yes, yes. Um, well, or, you know, the, the believing LDS scientist who works in a lab with other biologists, and so, of course, they're all atheists. You know, it's, it, uh, I, I heard a comparison once. It would be like hearing, a, hearing the struggles of a Latter-day Saint, you know, lawyer who's working in a law office. And so, of course, he's working with all these people who have no ethics. You would never read that in a church magazine. But I often see, and, well, and it's not just in the ensign. It's everywhere. You know, everywhere you look, there are evil scientists. And I'm married to a scientist, and he's a really good guy, a good faithful, believing Latter-day Saint who studies evolutionary biology. And so hearing this, oh, evolution, oh, DNA, and, you know, holding this up as an obstacle to the faith, it's, it's just, it's a crock. Right. <laughs> it's really a crock. Kind of a, a, um, re a red herring. Yes, exactly. It, it, the, it's, it's an obstacle to your faith if you don't understand it. Not if, if, if you don't understand evolutionary biology, if you don't know what it is, then a, a half understanding of it could could be problematic. But if you understand it, it's not an it can't be an obstacle to faith at all. The flip side of that, the positive thing I got out of this, and this is kind of a more more personal thing because I've heard this a couple of times now. The uh, the statement that RT found not helpful. So we're, we're on opposite sides all the way on this, Jay, is uh, on the need to nurture your faith with daily prayer and daily scripture study and service in our callings. That jumped out at me because I just heard something about this in another context. I don't know where, I don't know who, but some you know, guy with a general in front of his name was saying that every time they've talked to people who have lost their faith, which always makes me, this is my rant, by the way, John, which always <laughs> makes the hair on my neck, the back of my neck stand on end and my teeth on edge because they're always wrong. <laughs> but <laughs> I heard this and he said, whenever I've talked to people who have had an experience of losing their faith and I've asked them why, they've always said it's because they've fallen out of the daily habits that build faith, daily prayer daily scripture study, obedience to the commandments. And that really struck me because I've never heard that particular, this is what they always do. They, they, you know, they leave to sin, they leave to, they leave because they were offended. I've never heard because they've got away from the habits that, uh, that help you grow spiritually. And so I've heard the same thing now twice, once in this Ensign article and once just from somebody somewhere in the last few days. And so that's kind of jumped out at me as something that maybe I need to take a little bit more seriously. So uh, the answer from Ann Porter, and I might uh, not have expected this, is uh, read the scriptures, uh, <laughs> say your prayers, 
attend your church meetings and obey the commandments. Is that right? Um, th- those things, if you desire to maintain your faith, can't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd agree with that. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, just have to, I mean, clarify, I'm not saying that people should, you know, shirk their religious duties, but, but just that sometimes there are questions where that, that isn't a sufficient answer in itself, in my I, experience. And I agree with you, but I think the article's point that, I don't think, and maybe the article is saying this, maybe the article is saying that if you do these things, you will get your answers. And maybe that's what the article is saying, how I took it as, if you have questions don't seek out your answers and and neglect to do these things because mm-hmm. neglecting these things it, it takes a toll. Yeah. Well, I think um, I think that's a wonderful way to to, to close on on this segment. We're actually uh, running short on time for our first episode, so we have a few more things that we hope to cover this time. I think it might make sense for us to punt so that we can keep this short enough to fit on one CD. So what I'd like to do now is just thank you all so much for for coming on today. One of the ways that we thought we might uh, consider closing is to just go around the table and let each person close with a you know thirty second rant or a, a spiritual thought or an interesting tidbit that they wanted to sort of leave us with. And so with that, uh, we'll go ahead and ask Jay if he'll begin and give us his uh, little uh, mini soapbox. All right. Well, this week, the um, the beginning of June, is the 29th anniversary of the priesthood revelation, the revelation that um, Spencer W. Kimball had that extended priesthood to all worthy males and, and eliminated the racial restriction that had been on priesthood. Normally, the 29th anniversary of an event isn't a big deal, but because this year we have Spencer W. Kimball as the Priesthood Relief Society manual, I want to emphasize that this is a great month to bring up that... that um, that theme and that great moment in, in Mormon history and an in inclusiveness in Mormonism and talk about that again in church and, and, you know, maybe help people deal with racist stereotypes they might still have and otherwise emphasize something that's really a great moment in our history. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks, Jay. Um, and you're up. Oh, no, I already did mine. Thank you. And did hers. Oh. <laughs> All right. That'll save us a few seconds. John Hammer? Uh, yeah, the rant that um, I was thinking of, having just um, come back from the Mormon History Association conference and um, being out in Salt Lake City uh, uh, among Mormon Mormons, uh, Mormon culture, is just the thing that I am always struck with is the the failure that Mormons make to have to separate um, Mormon culture from the institution of the LDS Church. And I, I think that if there's a, an awareness that people start to have where they think of their heritage and their identity uh, in a broader term beyond just the, the single institution, and in as much as there are institutions like, uh, uh, that are independent of that, like the Mormon History Association and, and also uh, the bloggernacle blogs and everything like that, I think that that can't help but um, make the culture stronger. Very good. Very good. Julianne, you got something ready for us, or we put you on the spot? No, no. I think it was a journalistic low, and I can talk about this because that's my background. It was at the Biennial Faith Angle Conference where Bushman was being interviewed <clears throat> about Romney and his chances to be president. And um, 
Mike Allen of the Politico was talking about the the politically correct exemption on the Mormons and how people are asking Mormons, obviously, questions that they wouldn't be asking other people. And I was thinking about how Mitt Romney's wife was asked if they had had premarital sex. And I thought that that was a new low in uh, uh, journalistic integrity when uh, that took place. Yeah. Yeah, that surely was an uncomfortable moment for the viewers. Well, I just, uh, I'll go ahead and wrap up uh, um, and then just just sort of say that uh, I've been involved on the Internet in in Mormonism for maybe about two, two and a half, uh, three years. And when I I started, I I sort of came up with a goal of, or a mantra of what was most important to me. And, And I was able to narrow it down to three things. Uh, I, I get emails every week, probably three to five emails of people telling me their life stories, telling me challenges and problems and issues that they're having within Mormonism. And the thing that always strikes me most is that people absolutely feel alone. They feel like they can't talk uh, to the people that they love most. They feel like they can't open up and confide uh, in their ward uh, situations or even with their bishop oftentimes. Uh, because they're they're worried about what the consequences might be. They're worried about damaging other people's faith. And there's just a real uh, degree of silence and of fear that really has come over a lot of people. And maybe it's always existed, and maybe it's not even just a Mormon thing. But if there were three things that I always try and keep in mind and that I want to end with today as sort of the real reason why we're doing this podcast, it's the following three things that I feel we need. The first is that we need more open forums for discussion. We need places for people to go to share their heart and their soul as it relates to Mormonism because there's so much at stake. Marriages, relationships with children, siblings, etc. So we need more open forums. And if we have more open forums, uh, then we can have more knowledge, more understanding of the facts and of the issues that that perplex us all because uh, the glory of God really is intelligence. And we are to seek out of the best books. And the extent to which we are equipped to understand things, the less that those issues can actually harm us. So we shouldn't be scared uh, to learn. We should be excited to learn. And and if we have open forums, and, and if we have uh, more knowledge and more learning, uh, then what I feel like we'll have is less pain. And that really is what what I uh, think about and what I think everyone on this board is is trying to help encourage is more understanding more openness and less pain. And so I want to leave that with you all and and maybe make a challenge that we can all remember that and try and foster it and encourage it however we can. But with that, uh, I just want to thank all of you, uh, my panelists, for coming on. Uh, Ann Porter, uh, Julianne Hatton, Jay Nelson Seawright, and John Hamer. Thank you all for coming on um, Mormon Matters. Uh, We'd like to thank our listeners for joining us as well. You can check us out at at uh, mormonmatters.org if you'd like. We should also give a special thanks and a shout-out to Sky Pixton for providing us the music for this episode. You can check out all her music at skypixton.com. That's S-K-Y-E-P-I-X-T-O-N.com. Thanks so much, Sky. But for now, we'd just like to thank you all for tuning in to Mormon Matters Podcast. We hope you join us again. And once again, thanks to all you panelists. Take care. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Hey. Good night. The sun gone down, darkness behold me, my rest of soul. Yet in my dreams I'd be nearer, my goal to lead me 
Still alive. 